Welcome. You're listening to Value Add with Lars Coburn, bringing conversations and reflections that add value to your life. Conflict. That's what we're going to talk about today. Um, So as we find our ways into your Bibles, if you want to open up to Jeremiah, um, it's a book of the prophets, and we're going to... Yeah, we're going to look at uh, the book of Jeremiah and the idea of, of hope in conflict. And so I think it's uh, fascinating to uh, look at these books in the Old Testament that maybe we're less familiar with. For Jeremiah, you've probably seen a poster or maybe you've read a devotional or you've um, seen a thing on social media with Jeremiah 31, I think it's, or Jeremiah 29, 31. Now I'm going to blank on the exact, I always get it confused, which is the chapter and which is the verse. But um, there's this one verse that's very famous in Jeremiah. It's like, I I have plans for you. I know the plans for you, I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you. And so we have this um, kind of view of Jeremiah that it's this prophet who's speaking about hope to come. But then we read the book of Jeremiah, and it's totally different. It's actually uh, kind of a sad, uh, weeping prophet that we might we might call him, because it begins with all of this uh, calls for God's judgment against the people. And so I just want to kind of give you a quick overview of the book, and then I'm going to help us read through parts of it. And we're going to actually look at it this week and next week, um, and and really kind of try and sit with the message of Jeremiah, what maybe Jeremiah might want to say to us um, through, through the Bible. So if you have Jeremiah open, you'll see in, uh, in your, your book that this, uh, in your Bible, that this says the words of Jeremiah, son of Hilkiah, one of the priests um, in the territory of Benjamin, the word of the Lord came to him in the 13th year of the reign of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah, through the reign of Je- uh, Jehoiakim, Sorry, these names are hard sometimes. Son of Josiah, king of Judah, down to the fifth month of the 11th year of Zedekiah, son of Josiah, king of Judah. So you'll notice there are several guys who are the sons of this guy, Josiah. And Josiah was one of the faithful kings of Israel. He was a young boy when he became king. And so he wasn't mentored wrongly by his father, Ammon. In fact, Josiah was mentored by the priests. And these priests found this book, and it would be similar to uh, one of us finding the book of Deuteronomy. And basically, they found this book in the temple, and they said, Josiah, we found this book. It seems to be one that, that tells us a little bit about how to worship God, about how to care for our neighbor, about how to live rightly. And so Josiah brings about kind of a revolution in the way in which people worshiped God. For many generations, they had kind of wandered and done their own thing. And we'll read about that in, if you take time to read Jeremiah, you'll read about how he indicts the people for not following after God's law. So Josiah was kind of one who brought back that imagination about what it might mean to follow God. But his sons didn't really keep that up. In fact, it seems to be that even Josiah himself was complicit in kind of this economy, this worldview that that didn't see God as most important. In fact, it was kind of a worldview that we can do whatever we want. 
And you might relate with this, you know. Uh, people feel a little bit like they can believe whatever they want. They can go wherever they want. They can do whatever they want. As we've discovered um, with some of the political things around uh, the protests and violence, we're having a lot of discussions about property rights and what does it mean to respect and be a respecter of other people's personal property. And we kind of go, this is America. Isn't that just foundational, right? But so we can maybe relate to some of the people who lived in this time of Jeremiah, where Jeremiah is saying, you'd think it'd be common sense to be a respecter of other people, but people just did whatever they wanted in their own eyes, what they felt was good. And so this is where Jeremiah steps into a time of conflict. Um, and why there's multiple kings mentioned in his lifetime, uh, they're all sons of Josiah, is because one of the sons, uh, Jehoiakim, uh, gets taken and killed, basically, or imprisoned, um, and then, I think, eventually killed. And then his brother, Zedekiah, is set up as kind of a puppet king in Jerusalem by the invading armies. And then as uh, Jehoi or Zedekiah serves as this puppet king, eventually they get a little uh, frustrated and the, the, the army comes and actually wipes out Jerusalem and they actually destroy the temple. They take everything away and they haul off people. And you might be familiar with another book in the Old Testament that tells about that journey in the book of Daniel. And so you'll learn about people who were abducted and taken to Babylon in the book of Daniel. You remember um, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? They were in the fiery furnace. And you have Daniel, who's this great leader and, and person that kind of speaks as an advisor to the king all the way through the king of, of Babylon, but then king of Persia. And then he gets thrown into a lion's den. And, and then you have these other books that we, we might look at um, later, the book of Ezekiel um, will tell us a little bit about the looking forward to coming back. And so Jeremiah is kind of in that before Jerusalem is destroyed and then as they go into exile. Um, so let's just look. Chapter, it's a long book. There's 51 or 52 chapters. Um, so chapters 1 through 24 seems to be Jeremiah speaking to the people while they're living there and he's accusing them. He's saying, You've, you've left God. You have done some things wrong and you've left God. He uses great imagery like the image of uh, an unfaithful wife committing adultery with other gods. He uses these metaphors about God being their, Israel's husband and them running away. And it's a little graphic sometimes. In fact, you've strewn yourself on the hillside and let everyone sleep with you. It's, it's, it's very R-rated in some ways, the, the poetry that Jeremiah uses to describe this. He accuses not only uh, the leaders, but he, he accuses uh, the prophets and these kings and then also the people themselves of doing this, and especially of the kings and, and Jerusalem being kind of the center of power, being the places that have led the people astray. So then in um, chapter 25, there's this really great... Uh, call to recognize Babylon as God's servant, God's kind of um, uh, servant of destruction against them. This enemy is going to come up from the north. This is the, the uh, empire of Babylon, and they're going to destroy you. But then in, in 25, it seems to be that uh, he's kind of saying, okay, you're going to be in exile for 70 years. And um, and this cup of wrath or this this nation is going to 
kind of be God's tool or instrument of judgment against you and then against the other nations as well. And then in the middle of the book, chapters 26 through 45, is, um, is these kind of poetic judgments against um, Israel. But there's also a, a sense of hope. And so that's the, the part, Jeremiah 30 through 33, that you might be familiar with. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. There's going to be this return. And so um, he, he promises a hopeful return. Um, that after exile, God will renew the covenant and he'll transform their hearts. No longer will they have to say, know the Lord, because everyone will know the Lord. You don't have to read the law. The law of the Lord is going to be written on your hearts. And so there's, these, there's some great poet, uh, poetic language in here as well in the middle about the hope for the future. And then 46 through 51 is now a turn to the judgment of other nations. And so um, it's kind of an interesting set of literature. It's a, it's a turn um, in the book. And now he kind of calls to account these different nations, in fact, even Babylon as well. And um, in chapters 50 to 51, God will judge Babylon for their violence and, and all those things, even though Babylon has been used as a tool uh, for God's, God's judgment. And then um, in 52, you have kind of this uh, view of the, the temple, a, a recognition, kind of a uh, a narrative ending to the story. Yes, the temple does get destroyed, but there's still promise of hope. That the the last word or suffering and death don't have the last word. And so as we look to Jesus, we kind of realize the story of the Christian hope is one that says our God comes and lives with us and shows us great power, but then also dies. But Christian hope says, okay, even in that death, that's not the last word. And so we, we believe in resurrection, in death and dying, but also in rising and new life. So if I was to summate um, the one kind of thing I hope you will take away from the book of Jeremiah and our message today would be that in order for us to embrace what God wants to do new in our life, we have to let go of what has been in our life. We have to die in order to rise again. If we're going to have newness in our life, there's going to have to be an end to some things. There's going to have to be a letting go. And so what Jeremiah is really pronouncing is kind of a, a death or a dying of the known world to them. Their land is going to change. They're going to be taken to a new place. Their economy is going to change what they do in, the, in those new places. Their kings are no longer going to be in power their way of worshiping is not going to be the same anymore because there's not a temple. And so for the Jews, um, you know, we know now there's synagogue worship. And in Jesus's day, there were still synagogues. Well, where did the synagogues come from? You never read about the synagogues in the Old Testament, in fact. It's fascinating. But what they do is as they embrace this new vision of what it means to worship without the temple, they embrace synagogue kind of collective worshiping in a new way. And that then becomes something that Jesus embraces and does. He practices that. And then we as Christians model our church gatherings like what we're doing today after what they did in the synagogues that came out of this exile period in Babylon. It's fascinating that in order for them to embrace a new way of worshiping God, they had to let go of, they had, the temple had to be destroyed. 
And they had no imagination for what a synagogue-type worship, a worship um, of God that wasn't bound to sacrificing animals at a temple, was before this exile period. And uh, so I wonder for us, there might be some things in our life that we have to let go of, that we might need to die to, in order to embrace the newness that God has for us. Um, So as I mentioned, there's a lot of great poetry in Jeremiah. Last week we looked at Psalm 1, and Psalm, the book of Psalms, is all poetry. It's songs, it's music, it's it's poem. And we we see that in our Bibles. You'll see kind of the the text kind of set off like poetic lines. Um, Ellen, you read some poems today. That was great in your communion meditation. Um, I... I didn't know this, but 30% of the Bible is poetic and poetry. It's fascinating, right? And you come across it a lot. It's not just in the book of Psalms, though. It's especially in these prophets. There's a lot of poetry in here. Um, Let's just look at one, before we look at chapter 1 and the call of Jeremiah, let's look at a poem in in Jeremiah here. Uh, Jeremiah chapter 4. And I'll just look at the very end of chapter 4, verses... 29 through 31. It said, At the sound of horsemen and archers, every town takes to flight. Some go into thickets, some climb up among the rocks. All towns are deserted, no one lives in them. What are you doing, you devastated one? Why dress yourself in scarlet and put on jewels of gold? Why highlight your eyes with makeup? You adorn yourself in vain. Your lovers despise you, they want to kill you. I hear a cry of a woman in labor, a groan as of one bearing her first child, the cry of daughter Zion gasping for breath, stretching out her hands and saying, Alas, I am fainting. My life is given over to murderers. Well, it's it's, it's, uh, a lot of imagery, a lot of metaphors there. Uh, Can you can kind of pick up on some of them here? Let's see. There's there's an army, the, the sound of horsemen and archers. And then it talks about towns taking flight. Well, towns don't literally float up into the sky, right? It's it's a metaphor of them running off like birds flying off to the the air. Um, Some go in thickets. Well, towns don't physically move into a bush, right? But the idea of hiding yourself, running away from this army that's coming. And so as you think about um, like conquest, Babylon is coming and it's this huge army. It's thousands and thousands and thousands of people. It's probably millions of troops coming. And they were the empire of that world, uh, of that time, of that era. And they conquered Jerusalem. It was, you ran and hid if you could. Right? So Jeremiah is using these poetic things to say, this is how it's going to be. Um, and people were there. They, they saw the signs. Babylon was posturing. They were trying to make alliances. They, were, they had conquered Jerusalem once before and put this puppet king and taken some of the, the wealth away, but they didn't destroy the city. So they already know Babylon is powerful, but then they're kind of denying it. Well, God's going to care for us. We'll, we can trust in Egypt. We can ally with Assyria. We can you know, do these other things. And uh, Jeremiah will show how futile that will be. Um, then he uses another imagery here. He, uh, he talks about this prostitute. What are you doing, you devastated one? Why do you dress in scarlet being this color? I guess I'm kind of wearing a 
close to scarlet, you know, not red, but I'm wearing purple, but, um, but scarlet and putting on jewels of gold, you're highlighting your eyes with makeup, you're adorning yourself, you want to look the part. And yet the reality is the person you're trying to impress is the one who's going to kill you. Right? It's, it's, it's a fascinating imagery. It's a great metaphor for them politically, but it, it becomes very specific even for, for us as we think about um, people who we try and impress at times as well. Um, okay, and then the, the last one is the, the woman giving birth and crying and fainting. Um, so I, I think poetry does a couple of things um, that, that we can't do with just m- normal prose or narrative. Um, and there is some narrative in the book of Jeremiah, but these poems or these, uh, this kind of imagery that he's, he's trying to do is doing a couple of things. It's not, um, it's not trying to push us into being more like Jesus. It's pulling us along with our imagination. So rather than telling us exactly how to follow Jesus in our day and time, telling you where to drive your car and what to do when you first wake up, what to do when you show up at your job, rather than giving you a list of rules, do not do this, do that, it's pulling you along with your imagination. It's like a really good movie that has a great plot twist that you don't see coming. Right? It's like a good book. It just engrosses you and you, you dream about it, right? That's what the Bible really can be for us. And Jeremiah is a master poet of hope. He paints a, a picture for what God is going to do in newness. And he helps us relinquish our control over what's going on today. And so um, I, I think for us, we want to we be more like Jesus but we, we can't be pushed along into that. We can't just go to church and get like Jesus. We can't push other people to be like Jesus, but we can pull them along with their imagination. And this is what, um, as much as I am infuriated by the amount of politics that, have, uh, that we talk about all the time, I've realized that good politicians, the ones who shape uh, the country, they pull us along with their imagination. Um, I think uh, probably the best one uh, at this in recent years was Barack Obama with his uh, Yes, We Can. Yes, We Can. And um, I, I think that became a mantra, a phrase that people grabbed on and it changed the imagination of a nation. Now, it might not have been the right imagination. It might not have pulled us to the right spot because I think we all need to realize that our faith and our trust, as Jeremiah would say, is not in our leaders but is in God. And so that's what I want to get us into. What are we putting our imagination into? Um, Let's read just a section of Jeremiah chapter 1 here. Uh, Verse 4. The word of the Lord came to me saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. Okay, and he then he'll say, I'm too young. Um, Lord says to him, Uh, Verse 7, do not say I am too young. You must go to everyone I send you to and say whatever I command you. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you and will rescue you, declares the Lord. Then the Lord reached out his hand and touched my mouth and said to me, I have put my words in your mouth. See, today I appoint you over the nations and kingdoms to uproot and tear down, to destroy and overthrow, to build 
and to plant. Um, so it's, 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 it's interesting that this is the call for Jeremiah. He's, he's summoned to preach, to share these words. And there are other prophets um, that are doing this, that are speaking on God's behalf to the people. And they're not speaking the same words that Jeremiah is. We're going to find out about that in, in uh, Jeremiah, I think, 25 and on. There's some other, there's some encounters that Jeremiah has with these prophets that are speaking, peace, peace, everything's fine. And Jeremiah says, no, no, there's destruction's going to come. And this is why, because you have betrayed God's covenant. You've, you've broken God's covenant. Um, but Jeremiah is not just in conflict with the king and with the rulers and with the prophets and with the other people. He's, in fact, he's actually in conflict with God. And I think for me, most of the time, I would think that as a prophet, it's Jeremiah and God versus the world, right? That's how I envision it. It's like God summons Jeremiah and says, all these other people have abandoned me, but you're my guy. You're going to do it. I'm going to be with you, right? And that seems to be the call, right? Don't worry. Don't worry what, what you're going to say. I'm going to be with you. And yet, as you read through Jeremiah, he has some conflict. Let's look at Jeremiah chapter 12. You are always righteous, Lord, when I bring my case before you. Yet I would speak with you about your justice. Why does the wick, a way of the wicked prosper? Why do all the faithless live at ease? You have planted them and they have taken root. They grow and bear fruit. So he's basically saying, God, you've sent me to, to declare this message, but I have, a, I have a problem with you, God, because the wicked are the ones who are having a good life. They're the ones at ease. They've got it all. The good people are going to destruction. And so Jeremiah, it's kind of polite. As you read it, you might not look at it and say, oh, that's Jeremiah's being really kind of uptight with God. But I feel like that's pretty bold to say, hey, God, I have a problem with you. It seems to be that life doesn't work out the way you think that, that I thought you said it would. That if you follow Psalm 1, blessed is the one, then they'll be like this tree and they'll bear fruit. And I see it the other way. I see that the wicked are the ones who are prospering. Um, armies like the armies of Babylon and these other nations that are wicked nations that don't follow God are prosperous and conquering. Um, he gets a little more bold in, in Jeremiah 20, chapter 20. He's got a couple complaints in here. He says, you deceive me, Lord. And I was deceived. You overpowered me and prevailed. I am ridiculed all day long. Everyone mocks me. Whenever I speak, I cry out, proclaiming violence and destruction. So the word of the Lord has brought me insult and a reproach all day long. So um, it's kind of interesting. He basically is praying to God saying, you've deceived me, God. You've not led me in the right way. Because now I'm just kind of this crazy person who's looked at like a crazy person and then in verse 14 he says cursed be the day i was born may the day my mother bore me not be blessed i you know cursed be the man who brought my father the news who made him very glad saying a child has been born to you a son well that's a little bit different than in jeremiah chapter one that says before i formed you in the womb i knew you before you were born i set you apart and appointed you as a prophet to the nations. I, I think that one thing we may need to let go of, to relinquish, to embrace um, receiving the new thing God wants us to do, 
is to let go of our need to always be in lockstep with God. For God to always be in lockstep with us. For us to always agree with God. And for God to always agree with us. Because I think Jeremiah did something that allowed him to uh, be super, super, I guess, like a super prophet. Even in the face of all this destruction and a really sad message that he had to bring. And all this resistance and all this conflict with all these people. And in fact, even conflict with God. He was able to still live with passion and a vitality throughout his entire life. Because he had a big view of God. He didn't believe that everything was settled about God. He didn't believe that we had figured God out and that we could write out all the attributes of God and we know he's unchangeable and he's all-powerful and he's all-knowing. And, you know, if you go to a seminary and you can learn everything there is about God because we already know it all. He said, no, God is so big. God is beyond our understanding. He's too big to understand. We haven't figured it all out. And he was also not afraid to ask that question, is God good? He said, that question isn't settled. I'm still finding out whether God is good. And he trusted that God was good. He leaned into that. But he, he recognized that the, the conversation wasn't settled. We still need to pray and kind of attack God with um, our prayers, to come in conflict in our prayer time with God. I think that is a fascinating concept because I think too often we either think that everything is settled that we know about God or we make God too personal. We make God to be just kind of like my best friend. We sing worship songs on the, and listen to them on the radio that are like slow dance songs with Jesus where we're in junior high and we're at the dance and we're saying, Jesus is be my dance partner. And we just lean our head on his shoulder. We don't really talk to Jesus. We just say, Jesus, you're just my bestie. Um, I've even heard teens use the phrase, Jesus is my baby or babe, basically. And I'm just like, I don't know. It's too personal. We've made, we've, we've brought God down to our level rather than allowing God to be so great. I think that we can lose this vitality that Jeremiah has when our language of God becomes that domesticated. When God is no longer the great lion, he becomes the lion that, you know, sits in our backyard and is tame. We don't want to tame God. We want God to not be predictable or narrow. We don't want God to lose out on who he is. And so Jeremiah will use these great metaphors. He'll, he'll bounce back and forth. He'll, he's not limited to one metaphor about God. He talks about God as a bridegroom who's been abandoned. He talks about God being a fountain of living water. He talks about him being better than bridal ornaments a wounded, betrayed father, a lion, a wolf, and a leopard. He talks about God being a civil engineer that designs cities and, and, and all these kind of things. He talks about God being a man with a heart with heart trouble. It's, it's fascinating in chapter 8. And he talks about, in 18, God being a potter who forms us. And so I, I think it's, it's fascinating that we, um, we sometimes succumb to the, the temptation of, to make God into this little idol that we can control, that lacks power and lacks vitality. And so I don't want us to get trapped in that with our prayers. I want us to be willing to embrace the newness that comes when we're in conflict, not only with ourselves, with the people around us, with the powers that be 
in our world, but also even with God. And so if your prayer life is all settled and comfortable, if your prayer life doesn't ever go towards the, the, the place where you say, God, I think you've deceived me. I wonder, God, what's going on? Why do the wicked, so, you know, why do they thrive? And yet, Jeremiah's prayer life is also uh, recognizing God's justice and, and grace. He, he talks about God being a gracious God who has these plans for us, plans to build us and to, to plant us, not to forsake us. So, so Jeremiah is not always against God, um, but there is conflict in his relationship. And I think that brings some vitality. I think if it's all settled and all neat and tidy, then our life with God is just kind of dead. It's just kind of uh, hit an end. And we know that suffering and death doesn't have the last word. The resurrection has to come after that. And so that's what we're going to talk about next week is the hope that Jeremiah speaks about this planting and building. As you noticed in Jeremiah chapter 1, it's not all destruction. In chapter 1, verse 10, See today I point you over the nations and kingdoms to uproot and tear down, to destroy and overthrow. To say the old things, the way that we understood the world, that's dying. And then he says, but to build and to plant. So in order to embrace the newness that's to come, the hope that we really need, we do need to have some things be let go. Um, if you have some time, maybe you open up your Bible app and you listen to the book of Jeremiah on tape. If you are uh, struggling sometimes to engage with uh, the Old Testament and the poetry and all this stuff, there's a website called thebibleproject.com, and they have videos where they have an overview of the book of Jeremiah, and then they have some other ones about uh, poetry in the Bible and how to read the Bible that I'd really encourage you to check out. Um, but I would love it if we spent um, this next week reading through Jeremiah together. And so if you have that extra time on your hands, it's 52 chapters. That's a lot to get through. Um, but it is worth, worth the effort as you kind of sit with Jeremiah and the prophet. Um, so let's, let's pray and then we'll sing our song. God, we are truly grateful uh, for the ways in which you love us and show yourself good to us. And God, we also want to recognize that um, you don't want us to just see you as tame, as um, comfortable, but that you are uh, free to be who you are and to do what you want. And we can't control you. And so uh, we want to live a little bit with some fear uh, about that, God. We want to respect and, and recognize your great and awesome uh, power. And we also uh, feel a little sense of frustration with our world and with what's going on. We feel, at least I feel, frustration with um, the lack of your uh, coming to our aid uh, with things like the coronavirus and um, unrest and frustrations even just personally. God, and so help us uh, not to uh, let go of those things, but to bring them before you, to recognize that you uh, are okay with us being mad at you at times, uh, to be in conflict even. And uh, we, we thank you for uh, the fact that you don't hold these things against us, uh, but that you listen to us, and uh, in your way, uh, you call us forth uh, with 
with a new imagination for what might be. Uh, we thank you that suffering and death don't have the last word and that, uh, that there is hope in resurrection. So we thank you and praise you in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, as a, as a benediction, I, I did an exercise this week where I wrote an open letter to God about a part of my life that I wasn't sure I wanted God to investigate. Right? So as you sit in reflection, the idea would be to take a journal, and if you're a good journaler, it's maybe a couple pages. If you're not a good journaler like me, maybe it's just one page, you know, and you just, you just sit there and write like you would be writing to a friend. And maybe you'd be writing to a close friend, and you'd say, hey, I, you think my life is all good, but um, this part, I'm not sure I want you to investigate. And it's a little hard to do, but I thought that would be an interesting exercise if you are struggling um, with, with kind of wrestling with uh, the prophets and what it might mean to move into exile. It might mean that you have some part of your life that you don't really want God to investigate. You don't want God to transform or to make new. And so to write to God about that and just say, hey, yeah, I really don't want you to change this part of me. I really don't want you to, to look into this part. And, uh, and then just see what, what God speaks to you through that experience. Um, a, a friend, or not a friend, a, a guy who I, I now count as a friend through his writings, Henry Nowen, um, wrote about the, the return of the prodigal son story. And he sat in front of a great painting depiction of it. And as he was writing and reflecting on this, he said, the reality is God doesn't want me to find God. God isn't that interested in me pursuing him. God is actually wanting to find me. God is more in pursuit of finding me than I am in finding him. And so the real truth of the matter is, I need to let God find me. I need to be found and allow that to happen. And so I thought for, for us as we pray and try and think of ways in which to be more, uh, have that vitality in our ministry like, like uh, Jeremiah did, I wonder if we need to trust a little bit more in allowing God finding, to find us rather than just spend all our time trying to find him. Um, so hopefully this week you'll spend some time reading Jeremiah and maybe you'll even write a letter to God. Thanks for tuning in to Value Add. For more great conversations and insights, visit valueaddconversations.com.